0: This podcast is intended to support all of us who experience stress in our lives, especially during this challenging time. For those of us who experience serious emotional distress, it should not replace seeking professional intervention. I'm Bill Furlong, and along with my colleague, Dr. Mary Crosson, we co-host our podcast called Question of Character, where we answer all of your questions around the Ivy Leader Character Framework. We are delighted you can join us today. If this is the first time you've been hearing about or listening to our podcast, we'd recommend you go back to maybe episodes one and two. They're kind of a leader character 101A and B that will give you the basics and the foundations and the definitions of leadership character. And I think that will help you understand more of what we're talking about today, and you'll get more out of the episode. I would now like to introduce you to my co-host. She is a distinguished university professor at Western University, teaching at the Ivy Business School in London, Ontario. Her research has been widely published in the world's most prestigious journals, and she is the, one of the co-authors of Developing Leader Character. She is Dr. Mary Croson. Welcome back, Mary. It's so good to see you.
1: Great to be here, Bill.
0: I would now like to introduce you to uh, and welcome today's special guest. She is a recently retired clinical psychologist who had a private clinical practice for over 30 years. Her area of interest was cognitive behavior therapy or CBT with a particular focus on anxiety disorders. She taught graduate students at the University of Toronto and also provided workshops and training programs for mental health providers in hospitals and community agencies. She has been on the board of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Ontario and was the president of the Employee Assistant Programme Association of Toronto. She is presently a board member of the Regent Park School of Music. She has been a mentor for MBA students at the Ivy Business School for several years, where she has also provided a lecture in the Transformational Leadership course, which really focuses on leadership character. She also led a workshop at the Leader Character Conference in Toronto in 2019. She is Dr. Marcia Rothstein. Welcome, Marcia, and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Bill and Mary. Very nice to be here indeed.
0: So there's no question that our well-being uh, has been challenged over the last couple of years. COVID-19 environment uh, is an extremely challenging environment for many people in many walks of life. Uh, and recent research supports this. There was an article in uh, in July in the Globe and Mail that recounted uh, a survey uh, from LifeWorks, which is formerly Morneau-Chapelle, where they surveyed 1,100 business and public sector leaders, uh, mostly white collar folks. And more than 50% are thinking of leaving their roles. And 25% are actually thinking of resigning outright. And where are they going? They're looking for less demanding positions or simply retiring outright. And why? Because the research shows that they're exhausted. The pace and the volume of work, the complexities of working home. And uh, the the strains that they're feeling are the exact same strains that the the people that report to them, uh, that the people that they report to, all of the stakeholders that they deal with day in and day out. And so um, that's an example of, I think, the extremely challenging environment uh, that we're working in. And again, it's felt by people like healthcare workers, uh, frontline workers, people with, uh, with medical and mental health vulnerabilities. It's been a very difficult environment. So we were thinking as Mary and I were talking about different episodes, you know, leader character has its roots in Aristotle's virtues and the idea of not only decision making, but the idea of well-being is part of the the outcome of living a virtuous life. And given that's the focus of our question of podcast of the the QOC podcast, we're wondering how can we actually apply what we know here around helping people with respect to their well-being and the quality of their life? So the question we're going to be asking ourselves today is, can leader character and cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT, work together to improve our well-being? And as a spoiler alert, yes, and in a very powerful way. So, Marsha, again, welcome to uh, our podcast today. We're delighted to have you join us. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit about your clinical practice and your experience with uh, cognitive behavior therapy?
2: Sure, Bill, it's, um, I'm always happy to come and talk about CBT um, because I I feel it's an extremely efficacious type of therapy that's worked very well over the years for many therapists. Um, I'll give you a little bit of my background. I'm actually um, from out west, I'm a prairie person. <laughs> Although that was years ago, but I still conceive of myself as a, a Westerner. And I did my undergraduate there um, and then came to Toronto to do my master's degree, which was considered heresy by Westerners, to come out (laughs) to Eastern Canada. However, I did, um, and met my husband, uh, who was also from the West, and got married, and um, over the period of time, had three children, worked on my master's, and then went back and got my doctorate. So it was a very, very busy time. And uh, after uh, I got my doctorate, so this would have been in the um, early 80s, I worked at uh, a community hospital in the psychology department for several years. And there were a group of uh, psychologists in Toronto who uh, we came together as a group because we wanted to really talk about the relatively new kind of therapy that had been introduced uh, by a psychiatrist actually by the name of Dr. Aaron Beck, Uh, Tim Beck, who just celebrated his 100th birthday last week. And he is considered the founding father of cognitive behavior therapy. So he was a traditionally um, educated psychiatrist uh, and was treating depressed patients. When he discovered that many of his depressed patients had similar patterns of thinking, which he called the negative triad. So negativity about self, uh, negativity about experiences, and negativity about the future. And he thought, if we can change how people think about things, perhaps we can change the depression. And so he was one of the first people who who did psychotherapy, who really started to look at empirical work research to try to prove um, that his theory had some validity to it. And so that started, he started to think about that in the 50s and then in the 60s. And I would say it wasn't really till the 70s that it really got disseminated um, more wildly, widely. Although in Canada, it really was not you know, uh, practiced that much. Although, as I said, this group of psychologists and I um, really felt that this was the way to go. Um, And so we wrote this book, and then we all sort of practiced it as best we could. And um, so I basically, most of my practice was cognitive behavior therapy. And then in 2000, I took a sabbatical and I went to Oxford uh, for about 10 days. And I shadowed psychologists there because they were doing really, really elegant research in anxiety. And I thought, maybe I want to um, focus more on anxiety disorders. So that would include things like panic disorder, generalized anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and so on. So I followed these researchers, they were extremely generous with their time and their materials. And then I came back to Toronto and opened my practice again. And that was, you know, a large focus, I would say 80 to 85% was around anxiety disorders. So what, I, what appeals to me the most about cognitive behavior therapy is that it is evidence-based, is based on research. In the old days, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants in many ways. Um, But now we actually have protocols based on very solid research that helps us um, treat different emotional problems. And so it's extremely rewarding as a therapist and of course, very rewarding for the clients that we see. So that's a bit, of my background in terms of how I came to be here.
0: Well, that, which leads into the next question, which is, you know, with that background, how did you end up then getting uh, connected with the leadership character work and, and with Mary?
2: Well, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, my husband um, was a mentor in the program and he's a businessman. Uh, And when I was retiring, I think he talked to Mary about the fact that I'd retired and I I guess between the two of them, they decided, oh, well, maybe, you know, Marsha would like to come on board, which kind of surprised me because I thought, hmm, these high achievement MBA students, are they going to want to have a psychologist as a mentor? Don't they want some high-powered CEO to mentor them, you know? Um, But Mary talked to me about it and she really felt that it would be a worthwhile addition and actually, uh, you know, the the, uh, the students that I see seem to have found it very useful. I remember there was one uh, student I saw who was a real superstar. Um, I looked at his resume and I thought, oh, yeah, wait till he finds out his mentors has got to be a psychologist. <laughs> He'll freak. Um, but in fact, when he came in, he said, oh, I am so glad you are a psychologist <laughs> because... I really need to talk about things, right? right. So, um, so it has worked out, and, and I found it extremely fulfilling. I, I really loved working with these, um, these young men and women.
0: Mary, you must have been thrilled to have Marsha uh, come work with you and the students.
1: Uh, absolutely, Bill. And I, I remember uh, the dinner, uh, Marsha, where Marty, I met you, and uh, we talked about things. And in my view, it w- wasn't simply having you as a mentor. Which I knew was going to be fabulous for the students. But I had a sense that there were aspects of your professional training that would advance the work of leader character, which, of course, has been the case. Um, Prior episodes, we've talked about the PABC underpinnings of character, physiology, affect, behavior, cognition. And I know, Marcia, we're going to talk a lot about that in this episode, but I really credit you for um, making that important connection for me. I had seen in the work around leader character, uh, often uh, Marsha, with these high performing individuals that, that we've talked about, where there were the underlying issues that they were dealing with and that for us to be able to get to the development of character, we would need to understand what is going on at that level? So again, it's inspired, uh, you know, publication that we already have a uh, uh, recent empirical research around this. So, you know, Marcia, uh, it's been it's been terrific. It was just a pivotal turning point that you entered uh, into our lives. So thank you for that.
2: Oh my goodness! <laughs> Thanks, Mary. I, I'm happy to have made a contribution. I'm always um, every time I get asked to talk about CBT. I'm always very, very willing to do it because CBT isn't just for people who have emotional difficulties. I think all of us, doesn't matter who we are and, and what our level of emotional comfort or discomfort is, we can all learn from this model, um, which we will go into as, as uh, Mary and Bill said, um, because it's, it's, it, it basically talks about how we function as human beings in our environment. And how we can learn from the model to make change and, and help ourselves and increase our sense of well-being, which is why we're talking today.
0: So that's a perfect segue, then, uh, Marcia, into the into the next part, which is, so how does cognitive behavior therapy work to improve people's well-being? Uh, can you provide an example? Is this maybe a, a moment to maybe go through the model that that uh, that is used?
2: Sure, sure. I, I talked to you about the fact that when Dr. Beck first started, he was looking at thinking, our thoughts or cognitions, and how that um, affected our emotions, uh, in his case, uh, with his patient's depression, right? And from that, he, he, um, the model has, has extended to all kinds of difficulties anxiety, um, relationship issues, eating disorders, addictions, psychosis, and so on. And why is that? Well, the model is actually when you think about it, really quite simple. What it basically uh, is describing is the fact that our thinking, our cognitions, our thoughts are very connected to the way we experience ourselves physically in our bodies. Uh, So tension or lack of tension, um, relaxed feelings in our bodies. And also, so we have the thoughts, we have the physiology, we have the actual emotions. So emotions such as fear or anxiety, anger, um, frustration, sadness, we have emotions. And then the fourth factor in all of this is behavior, how we behave. So the way we think about things can really affect our behavior, our mood can affect our behavior, our physiology can affect our behavior. So they're all interrelated, these four factors. So we have thoughts, we have physiology, we have emotions or feelings, and we have uh, behavior all within our environment. Now, this five model sort of graphic uh, was really introduced by Dr. Christine Podesky in her book, Mind Over Mood. Um, along with her colleague, Dr. Dennis Greenberger. Uh, I'll talk more about that book, Mind Over Mood, because it is an extremely useful resource. Uh, But Christine came up with this five-factor model. And frankly, um, that's how you start cognitive therapy. When somebody comes in to talk to you, you start talking to them about helping them become aware of their thoughts when they are upset, so let me use an example. Actually, I had a beautiful example happen last week when I was out for dinner. And this was not a patient, um, but it was a friend. And she was asking me, we talked about the fact that this podcast was coming up and she asked me to explain it to her. So I thought, great, <laughs> perfect opportunity to explain it to a lay person. So she was. She had described prior, prior, prior to... Um, to our talk about this, she'd been talking about the fact that she was just so, and this is very typical these days, she was just so much hitting the wall from working at home. And there was an example she described that morning where she was at her computer, and the computer wasn't working. I don't know, there was something wrong with it. And she just totally lost it. She was, you know, she she got so upset because she had a deadline, it wasn't working, and she was just she extrapolated just that instant to the whole last month, and, you know, year and a half um, and got really, really agitated and slammed her hand on the table and was really upset and and got up and was, you know, pacing back and forth. So I use that as an example. So let's just look at that example. So there you are, your environment is sitting in your room, in your office or maybe your bedroom if you don't have an office, right? At home, uh, one more day doing the same old thing, and you're in front of your computer, and the computer is just bombed on you. Okay. And you have a really, really, you know, short deadline that's got to be met. So those automatic thoughts that go through your mind quickly, nanoseconds are, oh my God, don't tell me, not again. I can't stand this. Why is this happening to me? This always happens to me. I hate this. I hate my life. My life sucks. This is terrible. I can't go on like this. This is just too hard. When is this ever going to end? I hate this pandemic. I can't stand sitting here anymore. And those are the thoughts. We call those automatic thoughts, the quick thoughts that go through our mind, which lead to, of course, as you can imagine, real tension in your body. Your heart probably starts to raise. You perspire a little bit. You may tremble a little bit. You can feel yourself tingling, right? and the emotions are going to be anxiety for sure, because you got to get this deadline going, could be a lot of anger there. Sounds to me like there was anger there. Like, you know, this is just so unfair. I can't do this anymore. And then the final piece is the behavioral aspect, which is getting up from your desk, stomping around, throwing around your books because you're just so agitated and angry, pacing back and forth, which of course can lead back to thoughts which are oh, look at me, I'm totally out of control. I can't handle myself. This is lousy. you know. And you get yourself caught in a vicious cycle. So what we want to try to do to help people when they're like this is break the cycle. And how do we break the cycle? Well, typically, you can break the cycle at the thought level, which is changing your thoughts, or and you can break it at the behavioral level, too now you can do some breathing you know so that would be physiological but breathing is only going to be a short-term solution you know it might relax you a little bit if you do it properly it could relax you a bit um but really it's at the thought level that we want to try to see if there is a different way of thinking about this okay now that does not mean we're, we're talking about Pollyanna Pollyanna's ways of oh you know what things are gonna be fine you're gonna be fine this is gonna be okay it's not like that it's like taking the negative part which is yeah this sucks this is really really hard and challenging times and adding in something that gives you a more balanced view so we're talking about a balanced view not necessarily a positive thinking you know Dale Carnegie kind of view Mm -hmm. but a balanced view so yeah, this is really hard, and I've been through this before. I know what this feels like, but you know what? I'll get through it. I got through it before. I'll get through it again. So acknowledging that it's tough, but also talking to yourself about the fact that I've been through it before. I don't like it, but I know how to handle this. You know, I'll have to speak to my IT guy and get him in. He's always helps me, so I'll solve this problem, right? Right. So you may start to relax a little bit, feel a little bit more in control. And you can say, you know, I'm not gonna throw my stuff around. This, is, this does not help. So I'm actually, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go take a walk. So I'll just take a break, go for a walk, get out. And so you're starting to make some change in the behavior piece as well, which then when we go back up to thoughts is okay, I sort of handled this okay, that feels better you know, I feel a little bit more in control, I can can handle this. So you've broken the cycle. So you see how that works, Bill, and Mary. So that's
0: a, (laughs) that's a great example. It's, it's like you've been looking into my life at occasion, you know, I think we've all sort of had that. And I think part of, of, you know, I know, when I've experienced those kinds of episodes, uh, without CBT, a couple of different things. One is I don't know how to actually break it, And then secondly, I start to get down on myself. Like in other words, there's got to be something really wrong with me to be behaving in this way for such a for such a a small thing to have put me off in such a in such a in such a completely um, unhelpful way. So so how and, and I don't know Mary, if you want to add something to this, but part of my question, too, is, is how do you catch yourself? Is it just simply. The awareness that catching yourself is okay, that you're not doomed to this sort of circ- circuitous thought that just spirals downward. How do you catch yourself in the moment and how can you catch yourself sooner before maybe you throw things around and, and break a computer screen or a, or a keyboard? Is, uh, you know, how do you, is it a matter of is it a matter of practice?
2: Well, I think it's first a matter of awareness as you said initially. you know you re- you know this and I think this is what we're talking about today. Is you know is becoming aware of your thinking, and so it seems very simple. But you know, oftentimes people say, "I don't know what I was thinking. I was just furious. I I don't really know." And so, uh, and I will talk about this a little bit more as we talk on. um, But you can use your emotions, like if you're angry, and I'll, I'll talk about some of the cognitions that go with these different emotions. But if you're angry, you can say, "Okay, so like." what's really going through my mind now? Like, what am I thinking? You know, uh, I've had this so often in my practice where people will come in, they, they, let's use panic as an example, Where they've had panic attacks, and you'll ask them, well, what were you thinking? You know, and they say, I, nothing, I wasn't, right. I wasn't, th-. but when you go back to where you were, you were thinking, okay, and they say, oh, right, I was thinking whatever it was so the first step is really becoming aware of your thoughts you know bill um we all know you know there's been tons of of talk and research on how to help us in terms of well-being exercise good diet sleep but today what we're talking about and that's all true but today what we're talking about is the way we think that's really the focus right so um Yes, what you want to try to do is become aware of your thoughts. Now, when I was talking to our friend at dinner, poor thing, (laughs) she's going through some therapy thing at dinner, but actually, she found it very helpful and wanted a resource, which was quite interesting for me. But when we started to talk about it, she said, yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. I wasn't even aware so much of what I was thinking. It's like you were in my head because that's exactly what I was thinking. So when you ask, what can we do to help ourselves? First thing is just try to stop and say, okay, what, what am I thinking here? Sometimes what really helps and people think, oh, really, I don't know if I want to do this, but is to write your thoughts down. That can be very, very helpful because that gives you some objectivity. You see it, you look at it and you say, oh, well, you know what? That's a little bit over the top, you know? Um, that that can be very helpful to write your thoughts down, um, and to change your behavior. Like if you're pacing and throwing things, you know, it's a good idea just to say, "This isn't working." You know, this is not what I want to be doing. So, taking a break um, can be very helpful as well. I guess the first thing that I'm saying is really try to pay attention to what you're thinking.
0: I mean, any time you're in a situation, be it COVID-induced or the pressure you feel at work, you've maybe taken on an aspirational, ambitious project, you should probably expect that those kinds of, of environments, because environment is also part of the, of the model as well, will produce more of those opportunities, if you will, for those kinds of negative thoughts to start to work their way in and create that cycle. So part of it is is just even being aware and understanding that's just part of the human condition. When we get into these environments, you should expect that and you shouldn't feel, you shouldn't feel somehow less than that. That's just, it's just everyone goes through the same thing. And in some ways, the more you ask of yourself, the more pressure you put on yourself, the, the more difficult challenging environments that you pursue, the more likely you will be faced with these kinds of thoughts breaking into into your mind and causing those kinds of negative cycles. Is that fair?
2: Yes, yes. And and I don't know if you want to talk about right now, the second level of thought. We were just talking about automatic thoughts.
1: I, I was gonna say before we do, uh, maybe like just to make a couple of uh, connections that, um, that uh, around this whole notion of awareness, uh, I, I think for, People on the podcast is understanding that awareness is like a an incredibly uh, deepening uh, learning experience that would occur over your lifetime. This isn't just uh, listen to this podcast; you're going to get it because it is so deep. And I'll pick up maybe three points that are I think are important around this. One is we actually don't do a very good job of labeling what's going on in our even, and I know you're going to get to this, Marcia, with the thinking process. So think about the example of uh, public speaking. Most people, if they even begin to think about seriously that they're about to do a major, you know, event in public speaking, their heart rate goes up. And then it's like this physiology is like now it's rapid uh, working emotions. Think about that energy and motion. Now we start to label. Well, what is that? Uh, and then you get very quickly, Marcia, into the cognitive side standpoint that you're talking about. How do I think about this? I'm no good at public speaking, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's, uh, and then we're into this, I, I can't do this, and, and the, the cycle that you talked about. But with the awareness piece, as you're picking up, has us starting to unpack all of these parcels of what uh, are happening with physiology, with affect. Uh, with cognition, as you say, to kind of break the cycle uh, where it becomes unproductive. And then if I just make a moment, uh, Bill, at this point to connect it to character, is that if you take something like humility, well, maybe the reason that all of this is kicking in from the get-go is because you have issues around vulnerability, fear of looking stupid, fear of being judged. Uh, you actually haven't worked on developing some of that muscle around humility. And hence, you know, the heart rate starts to elevate and and then that cognitive cycle, um, you know, comes around it. So, So we're going to explore this as we go through, but I thought it might be helpful for us to make that early connection. And the last thing I just want to pick up on is as we listen to all of this, uh, where your last point took us, which is the context that we're in. I always like to get down to the atomic particles of it. It's, uh, it's about this space between stimulus and response, moment to moment. And there are these stimuli that, again, even being aware of what is the stimulus uh, that we find ourselves in, you know, uh, you know, time pressure evokes a different experience of, of the stimulus, uh, understanding um, uh, what might be on the line on, on, on something, lack of sleep. There's all a bunch of things, right, that are, that are going to affect the real, what we do in the moment between stimulus and response. And I think that when we listen through all of this, that's what we're really trying to figure out is how do we actually transform those moments between our stimulus and response? and the response physiologically, response in terms of emotion, response in terms of cognition. And what Marsha is picking us up is that we don't come in with a blank slate on this. (laughs) So so our experience of that uh, moment between stimulus and response is in some ways predetermined, but we don't want it to be entirely predetermined, right? If we take that awareness uh, and intentionality into the moment, we have half a chance at, you know, not having it just be this path-dependent moment where we always, uh, you know, end up at the same point, which is, you know, frustrated, anxious, etc.
0: So thank you, Mary. That's really helpful, connecting uh, CBT and leadership character, the idea of awareness. It's a lifelong journey. Uh, and then now, Marsha, returning back to you, you were just about to talk about a, uh, a second level of thinking. Could you expand on that a little bit, please?
2: yeah uh bill because this is this is sort of key to the leadership dimensions i would say um and it's really not a second level it's probably a third level actually but um well we we have at the top level these automatic thoughts those quick fast automatic thoughts and we can create awareness around our automatic thoughts fairly easily that's they are more accessible to us Okay, because they're there and you, you're hearing them in your head, okay? But underlying those automatic thoughts is, at, the, at the bottom, at the core of, of our thinking processes are what we call core beliefs. And core beliefs are really um, all or none statements that we have developed over time about ourselves, others, and the world. This, again, is comes out of some of the work of Christine Padesky, uh, who is a psychologist, and, uh, and based on empirical findings. And um, so it works like this. Core beliefs develop over time. Um, And when we say develop over time, we're talking about developing from our childhood. So messages implicitly or explicitly delivered to us from our parents, from our peers, school experiences with with teachers, um, our culture, certain beliefs about ourselves, others, and the world develop so that by the time we hit our 20s, say, um, we have these... We have these beliefs that we may really not be so aware of, um, but that can drive um, our behaviors and also contribute to certain rules. One of the psychologists in uh, England talks about rules for living. And these core beliefs, her, her name was Melanie Fennell, these core beliefs can drive these rules for living or underlying assumptions is, is, is another term that's being used. Um, that uh, contribute to the way we behave, to the way we are in the world, basically. So as an example, uh, let's say you grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a family and in an environment such where, it doesn't always have to be negative, I'm gonna use negative ones, but it can be positive ones too and it can have a, you know an effect as well. Um, but let's say you grew up in a world where you know you were criticized um, fairly extremely by your parents. Teachers were quite strict and so on. And you came to a belief about yourself that you were not that competent, that you were inadequate, that other people were smarter than you and were more competent, but were critical and judgmental. And that the world was kind of uh, very competitive and very kind of threatening place. So, when you have those beliefs, and then you grow up and you're up in the world, and let's say you are a leader, um, and you're thinking, you know, I'm maybe not as smart as other people, but I, so I'm going to have to hide that. I've been extremely driven and I've worked really, really hard. That's where I've got, but I, underneath, I'm not so sure about how capable I really am. And others are more capable than I am, basically, but. Um, I don't know that you know they're very critical also and the world's very competitive like it's dog eat dog out there so then what does that mean what are some of the rules that I develop over time well if I want to succeed I don't want people to know that I feel inadequate and so I always have to be on top of things and make sure that nobody can see any weaknesses I cannot show vulnerability okay because it's so competitive and people are critical they could you know come after me so I have to make sure that I cover myself wherever I go and nobody can see any sign of frailty or weakness Um, so that means in terms of my work I have to work really really hard I can't ever have errors in what i'm doing you know perfectionism is going to be a big part of what i do and so on you can see how that works and you can see then how that would relate to some of the character dimensions do you see the the whole issue of of vulnerability drive and and so on so these core beliefs are central really to who we are um and when if we become aware of them, then we can start to shift a bit, which is, okay, I've been operating this way and it's really taken a toll on me. It's been very, very hard to sort of cover myself in all aspects, never admit mistakes. That's too tough. Okay. I'm going to try now to open up a little bit. And if I, if I don't know something, maybe I'll just say I don't know something and ask somebody else to help me with it you know? So I'm going to start to experiment a little bit, see if I can make some change here so that it's not so tough being in the position I've put myself in all these years. So that's kind of an example of, of what we're talking about. And we can talk more about that. Bill and, and Mary, of course, will um, have something to say about that.
0: So one question I'd like to ask before, Mary, maybe you jump in, is, is that, and we talked about this before, is in some ways, though, that that underlying core belief was actually functional in, in the sense that people would work hard, they would invest a lot, They had a it, it built up their drive. But at some point it, it starts to become something as circumstances change, it starts to, to go from something that was a helpful core belief, I need to work really hard, to impeding your growth somehow. I mean, one of the concerns that people might have and sort of in the past when I know I'm trying to change is that when you do make a change, you, you do risk you always feel a sense of risk. Well, if I change, might I actually lose the good things that were associated with that core belief?
2: Yeah, that's a very good point, Bill. That's a very good point. Because, of course, making change, period, is risky, right? right. Any kind of change. Um, but, but to make changes, as you've described it, to somebody who's been driven and has worked really hard and, is, and has succeeded because of that, right? They're not going to turn into a sloth if they... <laughs> if they make change that's highly unlikely we're not talking about extremes here we're talking about slowly slowly experimenting a little bit right Right. taking just small little tasks and say okay in this one i think i can ease up i'm just going to try this we're not talking about making wholesale change that's not going to work and people won't do it you know that's too risky it's too risky So we're talking about making small, taking small steps and, you know, just saying, oh, you know, maybe in this particular situation at this meeting today with these people, I'm just going to try this and see what happens. right? Right, Right. Just try it out. It might blow up in my face, but there's not so much risk involved in this situation or it might it might be a good thing. You know, people might be much more willing to collaborate with me, I might be more approachable, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Uh, what I love is that uh, with CBT, they're core beliefs about lots of things, um, a lot about values and where you, you know, your rules, as you talk about Marsha. when it comes to character, we're, we're often concerned about a certain set of core beliefs. They're around the core beliefs that may undermine your capacity to develop character. And through the exploration of character, you get this wonderful opportunity to maybe begin to examine that underlying framework of CBT to begin to say, well, is my striving for excellence uh, under drive really striving for perfection? So you you begin to examine that and and examine, well, what's going on there and under what conditions does it look like I'm a perfectionist? And how does that affect other dimensions of character? For example, in collaboration and being interconnected and flexible. Well, if you're that perfectionist, you actually find that you can't give up control of things. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we've talked about previously, we might use practices of improvisation that allow people to engage in a space where they learn about themselves and begin to understand how does this connect to character. As you described, Marsha, maybe it's a moment where they can actually practice some vulnerability, experiment with that, and realize that it is not so threatening as they once thought it was. And I I think, you know, there's so much that we look at where people are, you know, driven by fear, uh, fear of getting outside their comfort zone, fear, as Bill, you talked about, maybe um, uh, letting go of something that they thought was successful, but in fact might be holding them back. Uh, so I, I know we're gonna unpack a lot of these ideas. So uh, uh, we'll just, uh, uh, I look forward to that part.
0: So Marcia, going back to the example you referred to earlier with, uh, with your dinner companion, and she had um, a glitch in her computer that led to a series of thoughts that led to this anger and anxiety. Can you sort of connect a bit better for us um, uh, how those, you know, those those thoughts connect to feelings like ang- anger and anxiety? Anger and anxiety. And I think in the past you've also talked a little bit about an anxiety equation. And I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, just discuss that a little bit with us.
2: Uh, well, what we know, based again, this is all. Um, evidence-based from research, we know that uh, different emotions have different cognitions attached to them. In other words, certain thinking processes go along with particular specific emotions. So for example, the emotion of anxiety, which is about fear primarily, we found that people who are highly anxious tend to overestimate danger and threat and underestimate their ability to cope or to find coping resources, help for themselves. Now, the danger and threat, you can break that down into, you know, how likely is the threat to occur and how awful would it be if it were to occur? And then, you know, how could I cope with whatever that threat is? And are there people that could help me out uh, if that threat actually did occur? So if you become highly anxious, and you know, really this is, as I, um, I've said I think to Mary, this is helpful for everybody, not just for people who have emotional difficulties, we're talking about everybody, if you know that anxiety is different than depression, which it is, if you know that, and you know that anxiety is related to threat, danger and ability to cope then when you become highly anxious you can start saying to yourself okay what's what is the threat here like and am i overestimating this so for example if i don't get this presentation really well done and it's not evaluated really well what am i afraid is going to happen do i think i'm going to get fired am i going to get demoted You know, are my staff going to decide that they don't want to work for me? Highly unlikely, highly unlikely. If that happened, it would be awful, but it's highly, highly unlikely. And even if it wasn't a great presentation, it was okay. Could I cope with the fact that it wasn't great? Or even if somebody said it was a horrible presentation and my boss told me that, could I cope with that? What would I do? So in other words, knowing what anxiety is related to, can be very helpful when you start to experience it. Now, the same thing with anger. There is a particular thinking process involved with anger and that has to do with the feeling that something is unjust or that rules have been broken, that your personal rules or sense of fairness have been challenged and you become angry about that. So if somebody personally insults you or they do something that you think is really not fair or unjust or some rule that you think has been broken, then it's very likely that you're going to become angry. And so you can start to look at that when you become angry and say, okay, well, what is it about this that's making me so mad? And then once you know what it is, then you can decide, is there something that I want to do about this? Anger often precipitates change. It's a stimulus for change. You know, can channel that emotion into taking action. Um, Depression is related to negative thinking and often related to loss. So again, negative thinking about self, your experiences, and maybe going too far with the negative thinking. Um, And then again, you can think about that and come up again. We keep talking about a balanced view, a balanced view. About how you can look at that situation. So, Mary, you might want to um, talk about those kinds of emotions in light of what's happening today in the pandemic and these character dimensions. I don't know, just that fit with you, Mary.
1: Oh, absolutely. And um, maybe pick up on a couple of ideas the uh, balanced view, which is a a really interesting one, right? Is that I often think about balanced view as giving people choice. That you, you have a choice about how you respond, not that you're captive to a certain way of thinking, uh, a certain way of being that may have crippled you in, in how you respond. So if I go back to that space between stimulus and response, I love uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, quote in Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in that response lies our growth and our freedom. What I feel he underestimated was choice. What does it really mean to have choice? And so the balance that that you're describing, Marsha, requires us to have choice. In the case of um, character, we're talking about the practical wisdom, even, uh, about our choice. to. So do I have a, a choice to be vulnerable in this moment or a choice not to be vulnerable, uh, a choice um, about how I'm going to operate? So what we're, we're starting from, right, is the, the basis of choice. And then I look at the equation that you gave around anxiety, which I love. And I know many people have benefited, uh, uh, Marcia, from the sharing of that. This overestimation of threat or danger and your underestimation of your capacity to deal with it, so much of that is anchored in strength of character. So something like transcendence, if you're a person who's practicing that transcendence on a day in and day out, being a person who's optimistic and future-oriented around how, how you deal with things, you've got this muscle that starts to kick in that prevents you from going down a slippery slope of imagining all of the negative possibilities and ramifications of a particular situation. And it equally prepares you to say, but I, I know regardless of the threat that I'm dealing with, I, can, I will be in a position to be able to handle it. And, and even if we also pick up, it's not just the heroic view of handling, we go into things like collaboration, and a sense of humanity to recognize you're not in these things alone. And so you've got this sense immediately that starts to kick in about how it is you operate. Um, temperance becomes critical. Uh, we know that uh, those physiological aspects anchored in you know this patience and calm about things allow us the presence of mind that preserve the space between stimulus and response, right? That, that don't get us into this sort of reactionary moment of, uh, that, that gets us down the slippery slope of ineffective responses around things. that we hold that space. And, you know, I, I picked this up that it, it, it's not just important to us as, as individuals and in how we manage it, but the character contagion about how it affects others. Because the moment that people uh, start to see, you know, that we're losing, uh, losing it, you know, in that moment, they lose hope, right? They lose that sense of possibility. And how do we collectively, you know, keep that space open? So I love, I love how you've um, presented this, Marcia, to really set it up for helping people understand these uh, muscles of character and how they might change who we are in the moment. The last thing I might say about this, because I, I may be inspired by the Olympics on, on this front, right, you look at these athletes, if they were, uh, anxiety would uh, amass at the, uh, you know, just incredible levels. If they allowed themselves to go down the path of imagining all of the possible things that could go wrong about, and and what they're going to deal with it. So. What we, you know, when you, we get too outcome focused on something, and this is the balanced view, right? It's like, it's not that you, you you want to know danger that prevents you, you know, from jumping off a cliff, but too many of us are so outcome focused that we lose sight of, as we get to the character um, space, who am I in the moment? And if I can trust who I am in the moment, if I can trust in my training, as this is the equivalent for the athletes. I have to trust in who I am in this moment and not get ahead of myself, not be thinking about all the implications if I don't do this. And that the character piece, who I am, then fundamentally affects what I do and and the outcomes about it. So I think this is a piece we haven't really talked about, right? It's, it's that uh, this aspect of Uh, thinking who am I in this moment, trust in, we can think about this, the development of character, or in your case, Marsha, the work around CBT, and then trust in that moment, and then learn from it, right? Uh, Reflecting uh, after the fact and saying, you know what? My best self didn't come out in that moment. What can I learn from it? You know, what did I allow to have happened or what were the thought processes? So those are are a few points of connection I'd, I'd make.
2: Yeah, I would just like to add, Mary, when you brought up the Olympics, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it, that mental health has become such a big issue in the Olympic discussion, not just with the gymnast, but other people as well have been talking about that. And so, you know, trust me, cognitions are playing a big role here, (laughs) you know, in terms of anxiety, risk, threat ability to cope that's all kicking in and, and it basically has to because they're not going to accomplish you know what they've they've done so far but if they think the risk is so high they're going to be humiliated they're going to hurt themselves you know they wouldn't be able to cope if they lost if they fell whatever your anxiety is just going to be sky high and you know how anxiety and physiological aspects of anxiety affect performance So, you know, I'm sure many, many of them have had sports psychologists that work on this kind of thing that have to do with the way they think about things, you know, plays a very big role. And that's so much of what our discussion is about today, is how we think about things, which sounds so simple, really, doesn't it? But so many of us are so unaware of what we're really thinking and the underlying bits of what we're that drive our those quick, fast, automatic thoughts.
1: Marcia, maybe one thing I'd add about the lack of awareness um, as I uh, looked at the development of character side of things, and in one of the articles that we wrote about this is these big, you know, these anatomical systems, physiology, affect, behavior, cognition, is that particularly that affect, you know, emotion, feeling, mood, many people have actually learned to, to try to suppress it as a system, right? And it, so it's like, it, it would be like an athlete going, I'm only gonna work my upper body and not my lower body. Like, it, 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 it's like, so if people have had this view, let's take emotion out of things. It, and it's been such a, an incredibly, a short sighted view of things because emotions, this energy and motion are there and they're important aspects around, you know, being passionate about something. Uh, you know, having empathy. Uh, these are all things for, for which we, we really want to be thinking about emotion. And so what I love for people to come out of this episode with is recognition that emotion is a natural part of our being. It is not something you suppress. It is something you learn about Uh, In the same way, we wouldn't tell ourselves to, you know, not think like, you know, don't, you know, get a brain lobotomy, you know, about something. It's like, you think, thinking is a part of us, your physiology is a natural part of us, emotion is a natural part of us. And part of the work that needs to be done is for people to learn, what is that system? How does it work? Uh, Become curious about it. And boy, if we can get this whole a view of oh, let's just take emotion out of it. Let's not get emotional. Uh, whoa, you know that's just a, a shorthand, you know, for for a view that people really haven't thought about what emotions are, how they work, how they influence the the thought process. You can try to suppress them, but they're going to be there. So let's let's you know be be clear about how they operate.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you emphasized that, Mary, because I actually was going to talk about uh, we talked about some of these emotions, anger and anxiety and sadness, but I, we didn't, I didn't talk about emotion in general. And oftentimes in my practice, I use emotion as uh, and describe it to um, people as a cue for us to pay attention to our thoughts. In other words, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling angry, that's a cue for you. It's a red flag going up and saying, okay, I'm feeling this way. What does that mean? What's the meaning of my anxiety? What's the meaning of this anger? And then trying to unpack what is going on in your mind that, are, that is connected to whatever this emotion is that you're experiencing. So emotions really are a huge part of becoming aware of our thinking. And we can change them our thinking uh, as a way of changing extreme emotion. Mo- em- let's be clear, you know, we don't want to get rid of emotions it's there. It's functional, you know, it's been there. It's an evolutionary part of us. It's there for a purpose. Anxiety, for example, you know, you don't think that those, uh, those uh olympic athletes their anxiety is up there they're revved up you know and that's a good thing because they're more likely to race faster or do whatever they're doing because they're geared up it's when it hits a peak that it becomes dysfunctional when it just starts to slide you know and your performance decreases so our emotions are a very very important important part of the way we function and uh, i totally agree that uh, that is not something that we want to um, delete from our from our being at all it serves a purpose our emotions definitely serve a purpose and um and play a very big role in helping us actually figure out how to feel better in the long run
0: that reminds me of a uh, saying by i can't remember the the neurophysicists na- or the neuro uh, neuroscientists name but he's quoted as saying um we are uh we are not thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that think. And that the idea of removing emotions from your human experience, first of all, removes your humanness uh, as, as to what we are as human beings. But secondly, is a critical part of, of your well-being as a person.
1: Bill, one other thing I would add, see if Marcia would uh, agree with this. I often, because core beliefs is such a complex area, Marcia, right? Is that there's core beliefs about so many things. I often try to in the character work um, connected in a, I, I would call it more of a simplified format around Carol Dweck's uh, work, fixed versus growth mindset, because they create a portfolio of core beliefs for an individual that might, you know, ha- have somebody have that fixed mindset versus a, you know, portfolio of beliefs around growth mindset. So it's, it's it's not a bad stepping stone into where I do believe people would want to go because that's, I, I, it's not that, I, d- I don't mean to describe it maybe as simplified, but it's a, it's a, uh, a, a first step, right, in understanding a collection of core beliefs. And then I think where Marcia is taking us is that it unpacks like into something like trust, which um, trust might be you know not really picked up in a fixed versus growth mindset, but it's something uh, a broader uh, you know has broader applications. So you can start to unpack all of these little bits. but a good starting point Marsha, what do you think about that the fixed and growth mindset uh, approaches? I,
2: get, I yeah, I guess I, I would just uh, describe it in different terms, but basically the concept is 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 pretty on. Um, which is that we, if we have these very rigidly held beliefs where there's no room for flexibility, then, then of course you're going to be quite restricted and constricted in how you are in the world. And don't allow yourself to open up to new ways of thinking and new ways of being with, the, with a mindset that's more open and more flexible um, and more willing to experiment and so on you're much more likely um, to grow and to enhance and to enhance yourself of well-being for sure. So those two aspects, I think, uh, fit well into the cognitive model, which is, you know, rigidity of core beliefs versus, you know, a more open way of viewing um, yourself, the world, and, and, and others, which leads to, which leads to growth. Yeah.
0: And that connects, Marcia, with a comment that uh, Mary and I and Corey had discussed in a previous podcast, which talks about, you know, what core beliefs are the ones that you probably need to re-examine? They're the ones that are very rigid, the nevers. This It's never this way, or it's never that way, or it's always this way. These very rigid core beliefs are the ones that probably are, are significantly getting in the way of, of growth.
2: And I guess the point is, Bill, that you need... You don't need to, but I think it is extremely helpful for people to try to figure out where those core beliefs came from. You know, they don't just come from nowhere. They don't. That's a double negative. They come from somewhere. (laughs) Um, And it it, it develops over time. It develops over time from when we were very young, as I said before, and with all kinds of influences, we end up with these can be quite rigid core beliefs which can get us into trouble.
1: One of the things we do um, in character development is, is something, a uh, life story, right, where you, you go through a series of questions, right, that help you start to consider where those influences are. And, Marsh, I know that you probably find out is that uh, there, are these, uh, uh, there are a lot of competing in, in the areas of tension. Uh, I, I have seen, particularly with a lot of young people I've worked with in life, uh, who uh, have this, you know, challenge around striving for excellence for, versus perfection, the way you described it, Marsha, at the very outset. Uh, they've been in environments, look at what the, you know, often smaller families, helicopter parents over things, uh, you, you, you get this intensity around how, how people are being raised. Um, and I, <clears throat> this is around the world, not just, uh, you know, in local environments. And then competing with that is a, 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 you know, an important core belief around family and the, and the respect for parents and all of these kinds of things. So the people then struggle with, how do I on one side um, you know, not disrespect those that have mentored me, but realize that that mentoring may have created some challenges with who I am. And so there's a reconciliation And an anger that starts to surface around, well, how did I become this person? And, you know, it's blame to the parents. It's blame to the teachers. It's blame to all sorts of people. And yet now I've got this, you know, competing tension with, but who am I? Now, so then we have things around the character uh, framework, particularly around things like forgiveness, you know, forgiveness of self and others. And how do I actually learn and exercise that muscle so that I can move beyond, uh, you know, moments of regret, moments of, uh, uh, you, know, you know, past sense of things? And we've talked about, for example, Eva Kors' work um, around forg- forgiveness, you know, as a survivor of Auschwitz and how does she think about that? And it, you, you picked up on it earlier, Marsha, around things like justice, right? Again, a competing piece. It's like that was unfair, you know, and I, I look at Eva Core in that. It, it is a, 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 injustice at the extreme. So not saying that forgiveness was about accepting the injustice, but it's, it's about how do I respond to, you know, with my sense of who I am so I don't have the personal cost that I experience day in and day out because I can't let go of the, you know, the dysfunctional aspects or the things that are not working so well for me. So, you know, Marsha, just such an incredibly important uh, treasure trove of uh, tools, really, right? To help individuals mm-hmm. in this world that we're living in, which is not just COVID, mm-hmm. but 24-7 uh, stimulus uh that are hitting us and okay. our capacity to cope is uh not as high as it should be
2: it's a it's a very very difficult environment right now that's for sure and challenges all of us and you know it. Uh, and if our expectation is that we have to be totally resilient and and show strength uh that's a good thing but we can't do it all the time it just none of us can you know we're all human beings and so we come back to this um, capacity to accept our weaknesses I don't even like to call it weaknesses it's not really a weakness it's our humanity really Mm -hmm. to accept our humanity that you know we we do have times when we just can't meet challenges and to accept that and not to beat ourselves up for it and flagellate ourselves for not being strong and courageous and so on. Because it's very, very tough out there right now. So many people have hit the wall, really hit the wall. It's been a very tough time. So I'm hoping that, you know, we, we have helped in some ways by giving, I mean, we could go on forever <laughs> talking about this. I'd love to. And, uh, but of course we won't. <laughs> but hopefully we've given some small tidbits of help people
0: so um, marcia this is uh, wonderful and the conversation between yourself and mary is is fantastic um and and maybe we should go on but perhaps in another episode going forward um i think there's more for history to on cover. uh before we start to, to close uh to uh, to conclude uh marcia and mary uh is there one piece of advice one thing Uh, Or two things that you could recommend to to the audience, to people that are, you know, sort of in this environment or just generally speaking, you know, that people can do that you would recommend?
2: I guess one of the things that I mentioned this to you earlier, Bill, one of the things I really do recommend is if people are interested in this um, topic is is to pick up uh, Dennis Greenberger and Christine Podesky's book on it's called Mind Over Mood in the second edition. It really is, it's been translated into 22 languages. It's empirically based. They are both clinical psychologists, highly regarded. It's based on evidence-based practice. Um, It's not just a typical self-help book. Mm -hmm. Um, It talks about the principles that we've been talking about today and some of the worksheets. I don't get a commission on this book, so I'm not (laughs) selling (laughs) it. For that reason it's just I've always found it to be extremely useful and most people who teach CBT do use this um, book uh, for their students to have so that's one thing a resource and the second thing I guess I'd leave people with is this whole concept of trying to understand even though it sounds very simple trying to really understand what goes through your mind when you're in a negative mood whether you're angry or sad or or um, anxious, just stop yourself and say, okay, what am I thinking? What what has been going through my mind? And maybe help yourself by writing it down. So use your emotions as a cue to then understand what your thinking is. And then once you do that, then you can start to look at it and say, okay, is this the only way to think about this? Or is there another way that, that I can bring something else in to think about it? And then is there another way then that I can start to behave so that I'm not so locked into this terrible negative cycle.
0: I love that, Marcia. And that's also something, as you say, everybody can use that all the time.
2: Uh, Mary, did you,
0: anything you wanted to add?
1: Uh, Maybe some practical uh, pieces that people can think about in addition to what Marcia talked about. If I go back to this uh, stimulus response, you know, it's trying to hold that space. Um, not allow the stimulus to have, you know, particularly negative or challenging ones uh, overwhelm us. And so practices like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, they have an effect on our physiology, right? We want to use those breathing techniques to uh, allow us to hold that space that allow then a different, you know, emotion uh, a cognitive processes to flourish, you know, to kind of set set a different course would be uh, one piece. The other is to think about the stimuli. What are you feeding your body? And uh, you know, so there are some uh, stimulus we, we don't have a, you know, the, the computer doesn't work. You know, Marcia, it's like they, they hit you. You don't, you know, they But we do have control over other kinds of things. Um, so we know from studies around nature. Uh, that it affects us. It, it affects qualities around things like transcendence and temperance. So w- go for a walk, you know, allow yourself to nourish a different side of, uh, of the stimulus instead of the screen, you know, that you're going to have in front of you, whether it's even five minutes, like go out, get a, get a you know, some fresh air and, and deal with that. Another uh, a practical piece on the stimulus, and uh, just finished, um, we're working on this music study around this. Music is a really natural uh, stimulus that you could use to activate on different dimensions of character. So you could be mindful about a playlist that you pick up that says, Ooh, okay, let me put this down. Things are getting a little overwhelming to me. Let me go to that music that transports me to a different place. Let, let me listen to that music that calms me down. So uh, take active control over the stimulus that we have for the ones that we can uh, and uh, to prepare us for the ones that, that just hit us like the cosmic two by four and, uh, you know, and then trust, right? Trust in ourselves and in others that we'll be able to navigate those spaces.
0: Well, Mary that's fabulous and marsha i i just think what we've what you've summarized here is so extremely helpful and useful uh for people for listeners um I, I, I can't thank you enough for what you've done and and the conversation we've had here this morning
2: well thank you for having me bill it's been a pleasure thank you and mary
0: so thank you again uh marsh and mary for this conversation um uh, Marsha bringing what you know about cognitive behavior therapy and all your experience and how it focuses on uh, addressing uh, self-sabotaging say unhelpful behaviors and how uh, being aware of your thoughts and how they affect your emotions and your physiology and your behaviors and your cognitions uh, it's just um, um, it's, it's enlightening and extremely helpful and I think can add so much to, to people's well-being um, And then on the leader character side, Mary, uh, about how leader character not only focuses on decision making, but also enhancing well-being in its own right, going all the way back to Aristotle. And I think what's been really useful today and interesting today as well is talking about how those two are natural partners, how each one supports the other to produce better outcomes in each area, how leader character supports the process around uh, CBT. Uh, a fuller more honest conversation with yourself the ability to stop and to listen and to diagnose uh, and that the strengthening of some of these character dimensions will allow you to do a better job in terms of your your sort of self cbt diagnosis but at the same time opening up that space as we talked about <clears throat> about how when you do have that opportunity to make a decision the stronger your character is, we've always maintained the stronger of your, your character the better decisions that you will make and all of that will lead to better outcomes and better well-being uh, in all contexts, not just the extremely uh, difficult ones that we're facing today, that we're all facing today, but just the simple everyday interactions that we have. Uh, a fabulous episode, a really important episode, I think a very timely episode, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to packaging it up and sending it out and, and giving it to our audience as something to help guide them and navigate uh, through all times in their lives. So Marcia, again, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating episode uh, packed with content. I'm I'm gonna have to listen to, I think myself, a couple of times to gather all, or to gain all of what I think we've discussed about today and to try and put it into practice. Uh, and thank you all also as well for all the work you've done with Mary uh, and, and just leader character generally with all the students that you've helped mentor. Uh, around the transformational leadership course, uh, it's uh, and and being one of the pioneers in terms of getting this work up and running and making those connections as Mary had talked about at the top of the episode, between uh, CBT and the PABCs and leadership character and how much that has actually added to uh, to the work itself, uh, the positive changes that it's made in in lives that you know you know, but Marcia that countless lives beyond that you'll ever know and how it sort of ripples out in these virtuous circles, uh, forever, really. Um, best of luck in your retirement. I, I hope that you continue to work with Mary in this work. I think the contributions you make are really important and, uh, we'd love to have you back sometime as, uh, as, uh, circumstances change and we learn and grow and we learn more about this particular area and how CBT and LC over- overlap. I think that would be a really important episode for us to pursue in sometime in the future. Um, so if you've liked what you've heard today, please uh, share with your, your friends and your colleagues. If you really like what you've heard today, because you, you might want to consider subscribing to our podcast, Question of Character. We also have a website, thequestionofcharacter.com, where we'll be posting various resources and articles, and in particular, any of the links to the diagrams, schematics, or item other items that have been referred to in today's podcast. It's also a place where you can send us your comments, your thoughts, or on what you've heard today and also any suggestions you might have for future podcasts. We will also post links to the Ian O. Institute for Leadership at the Ivy Business School, where there are even more resources, articles and information about the Ivy Leader Character Framework. So it's time to, write, uh, to wrap up another exciting episode. Marcia?
2: Thanks, Bill. It's been a wonderful um, hour talking with you and Mary. I'm just so impressed by the whole concept of Transformational leadership, you know, in the business community. I don't think we need anything more than that. Um, it's been terrific talking with you today, and and I hope some of the things that uh, I raised will be helpful for people in terms of helping them feel a greater sense of well-being in these very difficult times. So, thank you very much, Mary and Bill, for having me.
0: It's been a pleasure, Marcia. It's been a wonderful episode, and thank you for so much for contributing to this today, Mary.
1: Oh, absolutely, Marsha. It's great to see you uh, over Zoom here and uh, have all of your wonderful uh, insights. I've benefited uh, from them immensely over the years. So thank you for joining us.
0: And thank you, Mary. And thank you, Marsha. Good day, everyone. Bye-bye.